Welcome to the Behind the Goals podcast, the podcast about fans, for fans and by fans. Please welcome your hosts, Andrew Jenkin and Alan Russell. Welcome to episode 14 of Behind the Goals podcast. I'm Alan Russell, I'm here with Andrew Jenkin as always. Uh, we're in the same room again. Uh, it was difficult reunited. doing this with uh, over Skype. Yeah. yeah, reunited. It's like old times again. <laughs> the magic's still there. <laughs> Today we're going to be joined by Brian Jackson, uh, the football administrator who's been involved uh, in the administrations at many clubs. He's referred to by some, some at Foundation of Hearts as being the saviour of the club yeah. for the invaluable work that he did there. We've got a great chat coming up with him. Yeah, um, well, he's worked. He's worked on the administrations. I've got. I've got a list here. So, yeah. uh, Clyde Bank, Motherwell, Dundee, Dunfermline, Portsmouth, and Hearts. You know, so many of them, as we talk about in the podcast, went into supporter ownership as well. He's been a, you know, a huge advocate of the kind of work that we do at Supporters Direct and furthering you know fan ownership. And the reasons that he gives for that is because of. You know, he understands the motives for why supporters want to take that's on right. the ownership of the club. That's so. right. I guess some, one thing that's really notable, notable about some of those administrations, they were, they were pretty big and pretty complex. Um, so he's not just, I, I guess every administration is, is complex uh, and is difficult. Um, but some of these were really challenging ones. And, and we'll hear in the, in the chat with, with Brian, uh, particularly uh, the Hearts one he, we, we spoke about in depth. Um, and just how challenging that was and the u- unique nature of that relationship with the former owner at Hearts um, mm, mm. and getting that club into, into supporter ownership was, mm. a, was such a big uh, a big step. Uh, we'll also be speaking to him about his new play, which he's written. Which, a play what he wrote. A play what he wrote uh, <laughs> that we're going to go see on Tuesday. Um, Pie Man Cometh, uh, really looking forward to it. It's kind of a culmination of his experiences, isn't it? And he says that they're not based on any sort of one person, but I imagine stereotypes. Some, and, some recognisable stereotypes from yes, the world of football. absolutely. I can yeah. already imagine the manager, the kind of very old school Scottish manager, and, you know, <laughs> perhaps um, some pretty old school views on, on running clubs. So, yeah. yeah, that would be really looking forward to that yeah so it's the pie man cometh it's it's having its first four night run uh starting uh tonight as this podcast goes out sunday night the uh 18th of april for four nights at the oran moor in glasgow march sorry (laughs) march Uh, wishing the season away (laughs) well yes uh, both of us i imagine um okay so let's let's just delve straight into it okay so, Brian, thank you very much for joining us on the on the podcast. Yeah, no problem. For visiting us in our little office here in Falkirk. <laughs> <laughs> I always go to the best places. <laughs> yeah. no, you were in China last week, Falkirk this week. <laughs> I'm not sure which one's more exciting. <laughs> um, firstly, we'd like to touch upon a bit of your background because you worked on a lot of the different administrations in Scottish football. Um, so, just from here, Clydebank, Motherwell, Dundee, Dunfermline, Portsmouth and Hearts. Um, and... You're a football fan yourself, but you've got a strong business background. I suppose the first question is really, where is it that some people go wrong that they've got a strong business background and then they try and apply it to football, they kind of lose their head a little bit? And and how have you been able to sort of distinguish the difference? And uh, Well, I wouldn't say they lose their head a little bit. I would say they lose it a lot. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you're right, it's normally successful people. People have been successful in other businesses you know, the, the typical story is local boy done good, mm. sold out his business, has a pile of money. Well, I know what I want to do. I've always wanted to own, you know, a football club and particularly the club I support. So uh, quite often it is people that are very well intentioned. And what happens to them, I think, is when they come in, they just get carried away more with the emotion. Mm. You know, they're desperate for their mm. team to do well. 
they feel that responsibility. They've got the pressure of supporters. You know what supporters' aspirations are like. You know that puts a lot of pressure on you, and you see bits of the team that you you need. You're watching every week, so I think that subconsciously, the financial discipline is lost, so that you can actually get what you want. In other words, we can't really afford a centre forward. I know we need one. Can't really afford it, but let's see how the budget is. So what you do is, and again, I think subconscious, you probably budget for a cup run, mm. you know, so or you budget to to be at a certain place in the league where you get so much TV money, whereas you shouldn't be budgeting for that really. You should be budgeting kind of for the worst. And yeah, yeah you've got a bit of margin. So and I think a lot of these decisions are probably done subconsciously by people that uh, should know better and do know better, mm. but it's ta- it's overtaken actually by the emotion and. And that's why they lose their discipline because it's not like a normal business. A normal business, you go into it to try and make money. Sure. Well, they, you know, most people go into football clubs. I think they go into it uh, because it's their passion rather than to make money. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I often make the observation that uh, football fans are desperate for a white knight, and then when they get a um, you know, successful businessman, there's almost this deference to, well, he's got the Midas touch, he can run businesses, he's successful. And it's almost the, do you think there's a little bit of that? in the heads of the, of the businessmen who are coming into it, who have made money that they think they've got the Midas touch, they think because they've been successful at a complex business that yeah. taking something as simple as a game of football is child's play. I, I think you've got to actually spot on. Uh, generally in my career I've seen people that have been successful in, in one or two or three businesses. It gets to the stage where, never mind a football club, but they go into any business and they stop doing the due, their due diligence mm. because they actually feel they can't feel. Yeah, you know that that's what happens. They get this confidence because they've been so successful in the past, and that sometimes can can bring them down. They can be a, a, get a little bit sloppy with that confidence. Maybe the business is a bit different. Maybe they didn't do their homework properly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so of course the same happens with a football club. They they believe they can come in and it won't it won't be any different than running anything else. But of course yeah. it is. It's totally different. Uh, and, and of course they're desperate for success uh, and so they're overtaken by those emotions that they, we just mentioned It's also a business that's got immediate feedback every Saturday afternoon on how, how well you're doing and it's, there's maybe not all that much of a connection uh, to the well, business decisions and the, and the football results sometimes Well that's right, the feedback is very immediate when you're sitting in the centre stand, you've invested in the club yeah. and you're getting people hurling abuse at you telling yeah. you to spend more money and get better players yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wish that was the answer What is the main difference then between you know, running a business and running a football club? I mean a football club should be a business of course but there's so many different you know, facets to it Well it probably shouldn't be you know, it's, you're back to pound in pound out and that's why I believe that football clubs should be sustainable from their, the mm-hmm. income that they actually generate and when somebody comes in with uh, extra capital you have to see you know, is that going to actually always be there? Because if it's not, yeah. it's withdrawn, which is what leads to the demise of a lot of clubs and that you have a rich benefactor whose circumstances change. You know, they run out yeah. of money yeah. or they get bored with the club or yeah. whatever happens or they die or anything, yeah. you know. Yeah. So that can be a big problem and that's why I think clubs are better trying to actually sustain from what they actually generate mm-hmm. themselves. So coming back to your question, yes, it shouldn't really be different. But what makes it different is all the complexities of the industry. For example, your on-the-pitch results really affect your finances off the pitch. So let's say you're in a cup game, hit the bar three times, hit the post and so on. 
that can cost you two, three hundred grand. You're maybe yeah. just unlucky. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of things that are out with your control. Your best player breaks his leg. You know, things yeah. like that. It, it's a, quite a complex business in its own way. And I, I do think, actually, in football, you do need a little bit of luck sometimes in mm-hmm. terms of things actually working. Yes, statistically, the clubs that have the, the really the, the biggest support and the most money win the most things mm-hmm. overall. Mm-hmm. But... I do think... Uh, it's always a Leicester. It's always a Leicester, Correct. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. There's always a Leicester. There's always, you'll get the Leicester popping up now and then. And I think also you can be lucky and you can be unlucky with things that happen on and off the field. Yeah. So, and that makes it different than a normal business. Yes, even a normal business, sometimes you'd be lucky in things that maybe happen in your marketplace and other things. Mm-hmm. But not like football. It's too complex. There's too many agendas and there's too many different people involved. <laughs> yeah. You're kind of. Um, we had uh, Louise from Foundation of Hearts on the podcast um, a few weeks ago, and you were kind of revered by the Hearts fans as the savior of their club. Was that the hardest situation you've you've been involved in? Um, yes, I, I mean I often get asked that. Actually, I would say Dunfermline had mm. different obstacles, but probably nearly as hard in a different way. If I had to pick one out of all of them, I would say Hearts was the most difficult mm-hmm. because of the Lithuanian factor. Yeah. Um, legislation over there, dealing with two administrators, very bureaucratic, different culture as well, very different culture, which was difficult to deal with. And the numbers so, were a lot, lot bigger to, compared to Dunfermline, I guess. Yes, yes, yeah. big, big numbers. And every time, the thing with the, with, you know, the Hearts one, is, it's unfortunate because I always try and be as transparent as I can with any club that I'm involved with I try and tell what's going on I try and say this is what's happening this is the goodness and the bad and I tried to do that with Hearts as I did with everything the difference with Hearts I suppose was I couldn't quite share as much because I had signed confidentiality in a number of issues to do with yeah. Lithuania which I can never disclose really mm. um, or mm. I can for one but oh, go uh, on um, <laughs> exclusive on the podcast <laughs> exclusive on your podcast I'll tell you if, if I ever do write the book I've told my kids don't release it till I'm dead please <laughs> so it's not, it's not in the play then <laughs> so it's not in the play so uh, Hearts probably was the most difficult I probably felt the most pressure rise because it was a bigger club big support and I knew what it meant for supporters um, I, I mean a lot of people kept saying to me you've no idea what this means to me but mm. I actually think I do yeah, <laughs> I think yeah. I did certainly know what it meant to them and it, it was a long process as well you were in the hearts for, for quite a long time 51 weeks right 51 right. weeks and the problem with it you know all of them I had to change strategies as I was going because you know you have a strategy to sell the club and to deal with it and, and your normal way is that you get hold of the main shareholding and you sell that shareholding to the highest bidder uh, who you're hoping will be somebody that's kind of acceptable to everybody and to yourself and there'll be the interest of the club going forward, although that's a bit of an aside. Your job is obviously to get the most money in for your creditors, but the two kind of go hand in hand. So once you get those shares, and usually I get, I will get them for nothing, I'll get them from the major shareholder, mm-hmm. and then you say to, the, to your potential purchasers, there's the shares, they say, we'll give you so much, you take that to your your CVA mm. meeting and you get try and get it approved, try and get over your 75%. Well, with the hearts one, as things were developing, I thought, actually, I can't do that mm. because I can't get hold of these shares. Right. Because they're held by two separate companies in administration, one who's got security that I'm negotiating with in terms of purchase price and everything else, and the other one who has all the shares that I need 
has maybe a ransom payment, but actually won't get any return because all the money will go to the secured lender because secured lenders owe so much money, it's, it's a lot mm. more than we'll, we'll yeah. get. Yeah. So how do I persuade them to give me the shares for nothing when I'm not giving them anything? Yeah. And again, different culture, different country and everything else. So I had all those kind of difficulties. So what I decided to do was I'm going to have the CVA now because I've got my highest bidder. I'm going to try and get that approved by all my creditors. And if it's approved... I will then try and deliver the shares. Mm, so I did right. it the other way around. Yeah. And that was really painful, trying to get that delivery because of the court processes in Lithuania. Uh, and that's why I never thought I was going to get over the line. Cause mm. Every time I solved something, you know, you'd say you'd satisfy something and go into court, yes, yes, you're giving us all the people. And then it would come back, oh, actually, no. We now need this, this, and this. And I was thinking, but I've given you all that. No, well, it's not good enough. So, mm. and, and it just went on and on. So I'm not trying to uh, criticise their systems or anything else, but it was just very difficult. Mm. Had you experienced had you experienced something like that outside of football in your work? I have experienced going around the world and dealing with different countries and different legislation. Um, I've I had a very complex situation once in India, which was difficult, and you have to adapt to the way they do things, which would be difficult now because of the Bravery Act. <laughs> but, you know, you have to adapt to the way things work in a certain country yeah. and you have to go with that. And I did that and that was, it was quite difficult. But I have to say, nothing was as difficult as Lithuania. Mm. Yeah. I, you know, I have dealt with lost countries in my career, but that was most difficult. And I think it was because they have come out of recent changes in terms of becoming an independent country and changing things within their country. Yeah and changing their own legislation uh, and tightening things up. So uh, I think there's a, they've got their own history about that. But that is definitely the most difficult country I've ever, <laughs> ever tried yeah. to do business in. Yeah. <coughs> a bit of a, a two-question one here for you. Um, firstly, just how close was Hearts to going to, into liquidation? I suppose the follow-up question is, at that stage when you're in so deep of a, of a situation that, that's, that that troubled you know, what is the difference between being liquidated and another couple of days? You know, where do you kind of draw the line and say, actually, right, this, okay. is, this is gone? Or is um, that too complex to try? No, 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 I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, what happens during the administration is you have to self-generate. So it's pound in, pound out. Okay. And, you know, without the, the, the supporters, really, without them helping you and coming to games and donating money and everything, you're never going to be able to do that, really, mm. in those circumstances. So you, you have to get the pound in, pound out, and give yourself enough time to get the deal over the line. Okay. So, with Hearts, we were doing that, um, you know, after we got over the initial shock of £7,000 in the bank, 7,000 season tickets sold, but all money gone, the £2 million had all gone in prior debt, and uh, a month's arrears of wages, and actually no pending games because it was a close season. Of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's why I inherited. So, once we got the strategy of, okay, I need to sell 3,000 season tickets within 14 days to gen- give me money so I can actually retain people and give them something to account, I obviously had to make all these drastic cuts and everything else. That buys you time. Once it's bought you some time, you then have to think, okay, that's bought me about three months, but I'm going to run out of money. It's going to take me longer to do the deal. In that three months, well, I sold Billy King, I remember, and mm. you know you generate money other ways. The yeah. foundation were helping me. You know, and so you get through the next three months and then you, you find a way of getting through the next three. But the money was running out and it was the only one probably I've done. I always said in, in most of them, in most of them it was true, I always felt I had a 50-50. But I tended to think I really had a 51%. 
because fans will do whatever it takes. Yeah. Yeah. So I yeah. always felt, yes, this is really tough, there's lots of obstacles, but I always had a quiet confidence of, it's maybe a 51%. And I always tended to say 50-50 because I thought that was a fair assessment and also I didn't want to get aspirations way up and say people don't worry about it and then they may, might have a big mm -hmm. fall to go mm -hmm. if you don't get it over the line. And and sometimes there's there's things out with your control as well. I can do the best job possible, but you know if somebody like Anne Budge doesn't come along and finance it, mm. where, where do I go? Yeah. Mm. So you know I need a bit of luck and a bit of help. Uh -huh. So the fifty-fifties that, that tend to be my kind of stock line in most yeah. of them, and that and that's genuinely how I felt. And I said the same with Hearts, and I knew they had a real hardcore support that that would really help and do everything they could. And the foundation had mobilised. Before the crisis, which is unusual. Yes. Usually, most fans understandably wait for the crisis. Yeah. So yeah. that gave me confidence. But every time, as I said before, I got one through one obstacle, I hit another one. And actual fact, this time I thought the fifty-one percent was the other way, and right up to the last minute, because things were even changing behind the scenes. I know everybody thought it was over the line, but right up to the last minute, it wasn't over the line, and I was having sleepless nights all the way through. Um, even the night before we were meant to get the deal done, even the day the deal was being done, getting it mm -hmm. physically done, uh, it was, and we'd run out of money by then. So, if we hadn't got over the line that day, I had no money, I couldn't keep the club open, I couldn't pay for anything, I'd have potentially had to liquidate. Now, right. what that would have meant was that the present hearts, which still exists, would have been in liquidation, therefore, its membership would have died. So there's nowhere to play football. So you can set up a new company, like like happened in the situation with Rangers, because it went into liquidation. So that new company would have to then apply to try and get a membership. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They may end up doing the same as Rangers. They might have been allowed in further down the line. But the further complication for Hearts would have been, where were they going to play? Mm. How were they going to finance it? Would the administrators let them play there? Yeah. Because potentially, if it failed us, it's because the whole relationship and everything had fallen down which meant that and I always said to them look if we don't get this deal over the line you'll be left with a ground that has a debatable value because I don't know what planning permission you may ever get you don't know what mm -hmm. contamination there might be in site there could be all kinds of problems it could take years and years and you have a security issue you have an insurance issue uh, and that's what you're going to be left with so if it had gone into liquidation I wasn't confident I try not to think about that that option of course if it happened but I wasn't confident in the back of my mind that Hearts could just bounce back and create a new Hearts and have mm. somewhere to play and finance it. Mm. So, I mean, it's difficult to believe that it would never have come back in some form, but I think it would have been a long way back. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. the Rangers can a number of years to get back to where yeah. they are. So it would have been a long haul to get back, and I think that would have been it would have been very, very damaging. Mm. It was something, I, as I say, although I thought it was on the wrong side of the 50-50, I still tried not to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> it was just such a doomsday scenario yeah. to me. Yeah. Any of the other um, cases that you've worked on in Scotland that have, have been particularly difficult? I mean, the one I'm, I think about is Dundee. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Was it the first administration at Dundee you were involved in, the, the one when... The staff, the Stefano had been involved, and they had no, Claudio No, uh, the D came after. I did Clyde Bank and Motherwell. I actually did Clyde as well. Although Clyde wasn't a full administration, it was just a straight to CVA. That's just technical reasons. You know, it was yeah. a bit different. But I then did Dundee. So it was Dundee the second, the second time when they went back into administration. Yes, that was right. the second time. That's why they got such a big um, deduction of points. Yeah, uh, of course. Strangely yeah. enough, you know they're also just sorry to go off on a bit of a tangent, but they're also different. 
the administrations uh, and the strategy and things that change within them. Dundee was most, the most amazing situation in terms of what happened on the park. Mm. You know, they got a 25 point deduction because, yeah. as you say, it yeah. was their second time. Yeah. So it was a harsh and deduction. It, it really motivated them on, on the pitch. But they, they got this siege mentality. I think we had 12 first team players and 619s, and they played through injuries and they played through everything. Yeah. And they had, they had uh, their own hardcore support, and it was actually the most amazing yeah. run. It was. This uh, was when they were in the was championship, wasn't it? That's right, yeah. It was yeah. in the championship yeah. at the time, was it? They yeah. went in their longest unbeaten run in their history. Uh-huh. In administration. They, they won the division, didn't they? No. No, no, no. They, the next season, I think. No, they but they managed, managed to stay up with... Right, with despite that, the, with po- the points deduction, uh-huh. so it was the, the points deduction was October or November mid season is twenty five points something like that, and it put them on. Oh, was there were there were miles adrift at the bottom, and yeah. they and, and uh, they just they just clawed it back. Someone was talking about Dundee actually this morning, and uh, and they were, oh, it was a Dundee supporter. That's what it was, <laughs> and he was told that's what brought it back uh-huh. to mind actually because he's talking about it, and of course he brought back the memories of uh, Neil McCann and his famous scarf. Sure. You know, after that corner, when he came on as a trialist, yeah, right. That was, to be honest, that was the way we worked around the system when we couldn't sign players and we were so short of trialist. players. Well, trialists didn't have anywhere, you know, they yeah, didn't yeah. have a club anyway, so they didn't mind coming and playing for us. And of course, Neil McCann did us a massive favour coming and playing. And I remember when they, they actually announced against goals scored by trialists <laughs> against Ray Throvers. That's our point. I get Throvers into every single podcast episode. All right. So, uh, and the next time I saw Neil was in the gents in at Dunfermline when he was assisting Jim Jeffries and I was right? appointed uh, that job. Uh, and it was the funniest thing, I, I just bumped into him and I said, Neil, I said, you know, I've not seen you since your squaff, since your famous squaff, <laughs> and I never got around to thanking you for it. <laughs> um, one thing I did want to ask you, is I saw recently you, you sort of said after the kind of big financial mess of the noughties, I guess, that a lot of clubs found themselves in, mm-hmm. there's now been a bit of a sobering up, which I think is the term. Yes, I think so. Yeah. Is that, what do you think is the explanation for that? And I, I think that's probably the same as in England. And what do you think caused that kind of frenzy as well during the noughties? Um, well, I think, you know, just looking at what happened in Scotland, I, I think what happened here was that the TV money came along initially and it hadn't been there before and everybody got a bit carried away with it mm-hmm. because you got paid so much depending where you ended up in the league. So you had clubs chasing the Holy Grail. Mm-hmm. So wages went up because revenue had gone up and so you're chasing the best players to try and end up as, as high as you can. The problem then was, of course, is that I think at the time it was Sky decided actually we do really like this English product, but we're not so sure about the Scottish one. Uh-huh. And when it came to renew, I think they made a fairly derogatory offer. And I th- I'm going by memory. That's when BBC stepped in, uh-huh. did the deal, but the money had come way down. Yes. Now there was nothing in players' contracts that said that if TV money comes down, your wages yeah, are yeah. coming down. Obviously, uh-huh. yeah. so you had players on wages which now weren't really sustainable. And that put a lot of pressure on clubs and uh, they were all starting to get into difficult situations for quite a while. Mm. Um, indeed, Dunfermline, I mean, a lot of them carried on in a difficult situation for quite a number of years. Uh, if you look at, you know, their finances, and in fact, if they weren't football clubs, they would have probably gone to the wall yeah. a lot earlier. Yeah. But because they're football clubs, of course, they, they have not different rules, but they just, it works differently. Yeah. You've got that fan base. Yeah. So I think that's what happened in terms of putting pressure on clubs. So what that resulted in, I think, was the White Knights disappearing. Mm -hmm. Now, some of the White Knights were certainly genuine White Knights and they were supporters themselves, but they were beginning to disappear in terms of a lot of them lost a lot of money. 
and you also had different knights who came from different countries who maybe didn't have a prior mm. association with the club, which is something that always concerns me. Mm. What was it? What's their agenda? Is it a toy for them? Are they going to run out of money? Are they going to run out, run out of interest after a while? And that is why I've always liked supporters buying clubs. Yeah. If you get the right supporters, because if supporters buy clubs, you don't need to worry about the agenda. They're yeah. the supporters. Yeah. So that's that's why I've felt quite strongly about it. Yeah. And of course, that's why my last four, five jobs, I think, all the clubs were bought by supporters. Yeah, yeah. yeah. which was yeah. Portsmouth, Dunfermline, Dundee, Motherwell, Dundee. Dundee. You know, yeah. so they they all ended up in the hands of supporters yeah. um, and Hearts as well. And I mean Hearts. Hearts course, yeah. I mean and Budge who intends to give it to the foundation made up supporters well and a supporter herself so it's in the hands yeah. of supporters mm-hmm. and I always feel a bit more comfortable if you see what's happened in England where you have foreign people making investments for whatever reason the support and the support and ownership sometimes well, you'll probably know this from, from what you actually do Andrew mm-hmm. yeah. is it, it's getting wider and wider apart but mm-hmm. you're getting of course supporters up in arms, they don't know what's yes. going on. There's no transparency. They don't like the way the club's being run. Yeah, not even always foreign owners. Yeah, no. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> correct, correct. Uh, but I think maybe maybe I'll rephrase that to owners who aren't always sure. supporters. Yeah, yeah but yeah. even owners sometimes supporters well, of course get abuse thinking, as well. Uh, you're uh, I'm West Ham again, aren't you? I might be thinking of West Ham. Yeah. who claim to be West Ham supporters, but yeah, yeah. So you know, anyway. So that's why I think happened in Scotland, and why is it sobered up? Well, I think for a number of reasons. Well, first of all, of course, Motherwell was a mm. kind of. I suppose that was a, a bit of a fright for everybody that clubs really can, really can go into yeah. administration, really can happen. So I give, I think, everybody a bit of a fright. I then think that people were having to adapt the fact is this reduction TV money is a permanent thing going forward. It's not just a one-off. You know, the TV money is down. Therefore, we need to budget differently. And I think that overall, more financial people have come into the game. And I, th- I also think that... When we talked before about budgets, mm. I think now club most clubs do budget for we will be way down there if we do better. That's a bonus. Yeah. We will not budget for a cup run. Although sometimes actually <laughs> cup runs weren't great because historically some of the structures were so bad. You had chairman wanting not to get through the next round because the bonuses were more than they would make. How are we going to pay yeah. for it? Yeah, yeah. So but I think, again, all that's changed. So I, I think that slowly what's happened is people have just become more realistic and realise, look, we don't live between our, you know, within our means. Administration is a difficult route. It's not easy. People think it is, but it's precarious. And there's now sanctions as well to make it fair for yeah. all clubs. Yeah. And it's, it's a route you really have to avoid. So I think that's really helped in terms of people having now more financial discipline. So the best practice is to treat you know, getting promotion or winning the league and having an extended cup run, treating that as a bonus, treating that as, as extra on top of your, your, your baseline budget. Yeah, yes. I mean, as a boring Conservative accountant, I would, of course, say that. Mm. Uh, and that. Although that is what I believe, the problem with that model is back to aspirations. Sure. And, you yeah. know, you're a supporter watching it yeah. and, and an, owning, an owner supporter yeah. watching it. And if you're the it's, only it's club difficult. in your division that's that's acting that way, then you know you're naturally yeah. going to finish yeah. towards the bottom. Correct. And the, the real difficult balance for if you take just an average club, say say in the SPL, the difficult balance is small budget for players' wages, but we don't want to be relegated and have a loss of income. Mm, so how yeah. do we balance of course, that? Of course, and that's why I think sometimes, to be fair to the people that run the clubs, they do take a bit of a chance. Mm. For example, let's just say they can't score goals. Mm-hmm. it might get to the stage where they might just stretch that budget thinking sure. look we've got to stay up that's more important because mm-hmm. if we don't 
that'll be even more damaging yeah. to us. Yeah. So it's such a difficult it's industry. That, it's, that fr- it's that phrase I hate, speculate to accumulate. Yes. It's just speculation. Yeah. It is speculation. <laughs> it's, just, but just, it's just gambling. It is gambling to an extent. And that's where I suppose you talked before about people coming in with a skill set, being successful in other businesses, why aren't they in football? Mm. I think it's because they have to face all these difficulties, yeah. get these balances right, um, have a wee bit of luck as well, perhaps, mm. with their players and injuries and all that kind of stuff. And they have to do it all in the spotlight. Everybody watching, everybody oh, seeing oh, them. you can't escape. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can't escape. Yeah. And what I really like as well is everything always gets out. There's always a mole in every club somewhere. <laughs> you know, if you do anything football, you know it's going to, you know it's going to yeah. get out there. Uh, and it doesn't really, it doesn't seem to matter actually how confidential you are. Mm. You know, I've done some reports for football clubs, and although it's has been out there in the public eye, so I could probably mention it, but I won't anyway. Uh, I won't remind anybody. When I've done a confidential report, I've actually passed it to the person who's instructed me. There's only maybe been one other person in my office that knows about it, and it's all been you know, you know, secured. And somehow, at some stage later on, it's got out. Mm-hmm. You know, the report's got out, or a section of it's got out, and it's actually posted publicly. And in fact, that's one reason why I'm, I'm extra careful when I do any work in the industry, because I know potentially it's going to be on public record at some point. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Um, I love your vision for football, though, which is the, like, pretty much all the clubs would live within their means, um, spend what they could bring in and then spend the, the bonuses. But I suppose it's what they spend that bonus on, isn't it? It's whether, and I would love to see it invested into, you know, what the financial fair play say is kind of sustainable, yeah. positive development, which is infrastructure and, and youth systems and, and everything that comes with that. But um, but as as you also say, Alan, that if you had all the teams doing that, you, I suppose the clubs would find their place and, and you, would, you wouldn't really be able to progress unless you were investing that money really well. And that, I suppose that's the... Um, we, and that well, the first podcast we did was with Jim Keoghan that was talking about there needs to be better restrictions on the fact that the, the you know lots of clubs lots of fan owned clubs play live within their means because they have to, mm-hmm. um, but you'll have you know twenty clubs that just don't don't do that and that's unfair on the teams that do and I guess it's just how you sustainably develop yeah. and improve your product on the park. I think for me one of the problems is that it's the the feedback process is different. It's got a different timescale on the pitch and off the pitch. Mm. So you speculate mm. to accumulate and the, the financial feedback is, is maybe six months or a year later when you're when the when the money runs out or you have to report it in your in your accounts. I, you know, the agree, the, yeah. the on pitch feedback is that Saturday afternoon when that striker scores a winning goal and gets mm. you points that you wouldn't have otherwise have got. And short term always trumps long term. Uh, and when you're when you're in the public spotlight and you're passionate and you're emotional about yeah. it. I, I always felt that something that could possibly have been done is footballing the footballing authorities utilising independent people to go out, not to beat the clubs over a head over the head, but to help them. Mm. Because, you know, the the biggest factor of course is the players' wages ratio to turnover. Yeah. And that's the hard one to control and some clubs just don't keep to it. Now it'd be useful actually for somebody to be helping the clubs because I think most people running clubs know what they should do, but their implementation is difficult because of the emotion and everything else attached to it. But if they had somebody going out, actually really confronting them, not letting it become history and too late, and actually saying, listen, your, your, your players' wages are 95% your turnover instead of 60%. I said, you've let it drift and drift for whatever reason. Uh, let's talk about why it's that, and let's talk about how we can get it back in line, because if you don't do it soon you're going to be in real financial difficulties. And 
not in a patronising way, but to actually sit down and help them and say, well, how did it get to that? What can we do to maybe over a period reverse it to get it back in line mm-hmm. so that we can avoid you having an insolvent event you know, down the line or within a period? Because I, I think sometimes actually people know what to do, but it's the implementation. I, I've had a few different clubs come to see me that has been behind the scenes, um, so it doesn't get out there. In fact, they're very careful they're not seen with me. And <laughs> and they come and actually tell me, that, tell me, look, this has happened, that's happened, that's happened, and we've got a problem with this because of that, and that's causing too much because of that, and we don't know what to do. And I actually usually say to them, the stock answer is, you know exactly what to do. You've actually even told me. Yeah. You, you've actually more or less told me the story as in, but you know, because you need to do this because you need to do that, but blah, 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 and that's the problem, but you don't know what to do. Mm. Well, you do. You've even told me mm. more or less what you need to do. You need to do the following, and all I'm telling you is what you know. Your problem is mm. implementation. You don't want to implement it because it's tough decisions and it's cutting costs and it's cutting some people out, and that's tough. But the problem is if you ask me to do it for you, it then becomes public. You do it yourself. You can do it internally. And I've done that with a few clubs, and they've just gone away and they've done it. They just yeah. need somebody just to yeah. actually assure them that what they're thinking is right. We do need to do this. And actually just give them that push. Right, now I've told you you are right. That's what you need to do. Yeah. Get out and do it now. And and so yeah, it's, it's the emotion. Yeah. You know, it's just emotion yeah. more than anything. Yeah. Hmm. Um, we sort of touched a bit upon fan ownership and, and so... Some of them, just go through these clubs so Clyde Bank Motherwell Dundee Dunfermline Portsmouth and Hearts I mean Clyde Bank are now a supporter own club aren't they a junior club Motherwell are now a supporter own club Dundee were when you sold yep. it to them they since slipped out but uh, Dunfermline partially owned by the, the Pars Supporters Trust there and Pars United Portsmouth again a bit like Dundee slipped out yep. and, and Hearts as well and you say the reason you like selling to sort of supporter ownership clubs or supporter groups is because you, you kind of understand the agenda there as well and and I think you've been a great advocate for fan ownership over the years uh, as well. Yes, yes, it is the agenda. And it also gives fans an understanding mm. and maybe uh, puts their aspirations into the right place. Mm-hmm. Because if you're a fan and you're actually dealing with the finances, uh, then you might be less inclined to say, we need to splash into that centre forward. Because if you're a fan looking at your cash flow, you might think, oh, that's why the previous management couldn't buy a centre forward. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In fact, and if yeah. we do it, we're the ones running this club. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we've got a real problem. Yeah. Yeah. So We're the ones that need to have deep pockets this time. Correct. Yeah. And it actually allows people to see the difficulties of delivering. Mm-hmm. You know, so, and of course, as we've said before, you know the agenda, they're fans. So that bit's easy, that bit's mm-hmm. great. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem you've got, of course, is getting the right balance. And I'm not saying fan ownership is right for every club. You know, some clubs that are PLCs, it maybe it perhaps doesn't suit them. Uh, it just depends, the club, the makeup and everything else. But, in general terms, I like fan ownership, but it's back to it's got to be the correct fans. Mm-hmm. And sometimes a mixture, mm-hmm. of course, of some fan ownership and you know some external, um, maybe business people, consortium can work as well. It's a skill set. The skill set is just so important. Um, if you look at the foundation of Hearts, it's a fantastic makeup mm-hmm. on that board. They've got a great balance of professional business people, marketing people, skill set there, and not too big. Mm. Yeah. Just really yeah. just really good quality people in good positions there. Uh, and I think that is just so important. You just get the right people. Don't let it become too political. You know, people mm. vying for position, because this is the problem, it's a football club. Yeah. You know, everybody wants to be the yeah, chairman, yeah. <laughs> understandably. Most of the time I want to be as well. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it's kind of understandable. Yeah. We all want in the boardroom. Uh, 
so it's got to be the right people. That's just so important in terms of. I mean, I would rather have the right people who weren't supporters than the wrong people being supporters. Yeah, mm. you know, the yeah. management's got to work. Yeah, you've if you see if you get the management right off the park, then on the park follows. Mm. You no, know, because it follows because yeah. you're being run properly. Right your finances are okay. Yeah. You're not going to get into trouble. And if you're running it properly financially, that's going to help you help you finance yeah. on the park. Yeah. So as well as getting the right people involved and and on the supporter side to 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 run a club. What else does it take to have them hit the ground running and to be able to handle the complexity that they've never had to face before? Probably quite a bit of luck, yeah. <laughs> as I said before. Yeah. yeah, they need a bit of luck. They need a, probably do need a learning curve as well. And you probably need to be a bit thick-skinned. Right. Because I think whatever you do, you're going to be criticised. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's never going to be good enough. I mean, if you see what Anne Budge has done at Hearts... And it's absolutely fantastic, I think, in my opinion, from what I've seen. Mm. I've not been involved, obviously, since, you know, when the administration ends, my role ends, and takes over. So but, you, know, from you pass distance, her going out the door, she's coming in. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. And, and that is what happens. Yeah. You know, your job's finished, and, and nobody's interested in your job anymore because from the day she takes over, OK, now what's Anne going to do? What's going to happen? Mm. You know, and that's understandable. That's, that's the way it works. But obviously, I've observed what's happened. Uh, I've... Uh, been very kindly invited back quite a few times. I actually go back to all the clubs I've been involved with anyway. I just mm-hmm. go back to watch games because mm-hmm. I feel connected to any mm-hmm. club I've been involved with, so I still go back to all of them at times. And I've been observing what's been happening at Hearts, and it's been, to me, absolutely fantastic. I mean, when I saw that stand when I turned the Gorgie Road, <laughs> I, I actually felt quite emotional about yeah. it. I mean, it had nothing to do with me, I had no input whatsoever. But to think that, you know, three years on from administration, you I mean, at any time in Scottish football just now, to have been able to finance and build that stand yeah, would have been yeah. fantastic. So I felt, you know, really emotional about how fantastic that was that that club has come, come back to that. So watching what's happened there, you know, winning the league, bouncing back, doing well, very well off the park, Bit mixed on the park, but that happens. But overall, I'd have thought pretty well on the park, considering yeah. considering they had to bounce back from the administration. So watching all of that, you think what success story? And yet, Anne Budge has had. I don't think a lot of criticism, but she's had some because and you, sh- you can't escape it as football. Yeah. I don't think it yeah. matters how right you do yeah. everything. So you have to become, I think, a wee bit thick-skinned. Yeah. And the best part I've always liked about football for me personally is the privilege of being involved with these clubs. But at least I was only visiting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because, you know, doing it full time. I mean, yeah. I, I've been offered a few positions since and with various clubs. And actual fact is, I, I think you you have to be really thick-skinned to be able to take it week in, week out. Yeah. Maybe you get used to it. Mm. But um, I think, when I think it takes a particular type of person to be able to do it. I agree. I think I you're agree. viewed differently when you're there as an administrator. You're doing there. You're there to do an essential job that if it's not done, the club dies. Mm. So you're given a little bit sure. more rope to, to to do things that in normal yeah. operating conditions, you know, fans would say, "What are they doing that? What are they? Why are they cutting that? Why aren't mm. we getting the centre forward? Why?" Are, yeah. I, uh, I agree totally with you in that it's a much easier ride for me as an administrator than for people normally running a football club. Firstly, I'm a court appointed official. And, I, and my job's laid down by statute. So whatever happens, yeah. I'll do a professional job. People know I'm a professional person doing that. So you're quite right. They give me a lot of leeway right from the start. Uh, and using that leeway and being transparent and letting people know what I'm doing really helps and, and kind of works yeah. for you. 
and they know you're dealing in difficult circumstances and doing your best to save a club. So what happens is people tend to be with you and they do tend to make a lot of allowances for what's going on. Mm-hmm. Even then, I've not escaped criticism. I've yeah. had in every job I've done, and in all of them, I'm very pleased to say, even with hindsight, there's nothing I'd have done differently, whether I'd gone over the line or not. Mm-hmm. I did everything I could, and I did. I think I did always did the yeah. right things. Yeah. And I was probably lucky then when I started. By the time I started doing this kind of work, I had a lot of years' experience behind me, which helped. <coughs> so I wouldn't have done anything differently. And fortunately, I got them over the line. And even having got them over the line, I got criticised in all of them by some people. <laughs> um, you know, and that's, yeah. that's, that's just the industry. Yeah, yeah, so you, you yeah. have to be able to just take it, really. <laughs> so what you were talking about, just... Uh, Jumping a little bit back was about having the supporters, but also having professional people. So it's almost like a hybrid of the best of both worlds, where you perhaps have a supporters trust and the kind of the structure there of what that entails and democratic one member one vote, yep. kind of committed to sustainability, yep. but also having professional people and, and that right blend of, and mix of professionals and the kind of ethos and and values of what a supporters trust stands for. Um, and of course, you're sort of involved with club development as a consultant with us as well. But um, what do you kind of see as the future for fan ownership in Scotland? Do you think this is going to be carrying on in this this vein, or how do you think it's going to change? I I think it's going to carry on. I think that fan ownership is still the way forward for a lot of clubs, not for all of them, as I said. It's getting the right mix of fans and getting people that are really capable. Uh, and and I'm disappointed in the way, of course, that you know Dundee have slipped back mm, out, yeah. uh, and and Portsmouth as well. Uh, albeit nothing to do with me, just from a personal point of view. I'd like I'd like them to have remained with the fans. Sure. I can't say I'm all I'm totally surprised though, because as I say it becomes a bit political. People are vying for position. You don't always yeah, get the right yeah. people in the right positions. So that bit's really important. But it's difficult to see how it's not the way ahead. Because what individuals now are going to put piles of money into football clubs? Mm. You know, so it seems to me that the fan ownership is the right way forward. And as I say, I think it's quite good because uh, it lets fans see what it's like to have to run the club and it maybe puts their aspirations into the right place. Mm. I don't want to yeah. dampen fans' yeah. aspirations, <laughs> but yeah. no, put it into the right place. For example, if you've got the third lowest finances in the league, then logically you should be third bottom yeah mm-hmm. now if you can do better than that that's really good um if you do worse well that would be very disappointing but your aspiration should be set at that now if you're a fan running the club and you know that and you you know these other clubs go well, they can pay more in wages than me then when understandably you're up against it mm-hmm. but it but it puts your aspirations in place yeah uh so that's why I think it's actually a good thing. And, I, and as I say, the main thing for me is, you know, the agenda, mm. which I think is really important. Mm. My colleague James down in England and Wales always says that you want to make it like a spectator sport, running a club like a spectator sport. So you want a fan, a off-the-street fan, to be able to come in and understand why the decisions you're making mm. uh, and, and to be able to understand that and take that away. And I suppose that's the transparency aspect of it as well. Yes, there's a transparency. And I remember when I was doing the Motherwell job, I met with the heads of the different sporting clubs at the time, and uh, quite early on, I did that in all of them actually, and I tried mm. to keep you know regular contact with with fans, let them know what was going on, and um, so when I first met with them, they were very up, they were very upset because I'd I'd uh, signed I'd sold their left winger mm. to Hull, so I was trying to remember his name, Stuart Elliott. Okay, yeah, uh, and he he was a bit of a fan favourite. He was a nice player, and I think at the time. 
got 150,000 form, whatever, and they were a bit upset. Anyway, I, at my first meeting, explained what the administration meant, how it would work, how it would operate, what I'd be doing. And I said, the reason I sold him and took this money so early is that my budget for the year has got a 300 grand deficiency. Mm. I've made all these cuts, I mean, 19 players, huge cuts, uh, and some non-players, but I'm still, I, I need to keep a structure, and I need to keep a team, but I'm mm. still struggling. Uh, I might need to make more, and I don't want to, so I've got 300 grand deficiency. Well, I just solved half of it. I've still 150 grand I need to, I need to find, and I, and I want you to know that. Mm-hmm. So if you see further cuts or you see me sell another player, that's why I have to do it. Mm-hmm. So either you're going to have a slimmed-down club in administration, which hopefully will come out of administration, or you have no club. Mm-hmm. So the, I'm not saying they liked the explanation, but they understood it. Yeah. So, yeah. And then after we had a lot of regular meetings, I remember one of them said to me, he said, this administration's great. He said, we've, le- we've learned more about how the runnings of this club you know, in the last year or so, <laughs> we're known. <laughs> because I think, I'm, I'm not trying to be critical, but I think historically chairman mm. didn't really share a lot with fans. It was just the kind of structure that yeah. was in I th- Scotland. I think there's also a real skill in being able to tell, to make those things really clear in a simple language like that, that, that people will get rather than making it more complex than it needs to be or obf- obfuscating it because there's some unpalatable truths that you don't want to get mm. out or some confidential yeah. Yeah. agreements that are part of the mess that got you there in the first place that you don't want people to find out. Being able to, A, have a, you know, a clean sheet of, sheet of paper down on the table and say so this is how it is mm-hmm. um, and also having the skills to communicate that to, to anybody who wants to listen is, is I think that, I think one of the things that makes that makes that work yeah and the, and the interesting thing about keeping all that dialogue dialogue open it, it helps me in my job as well because fans understand what's going on they give you their support and that's not just financially it's psychologically because you go through stages and you, your head's down because you just think mm-hmm. how am I going to get this out I mean if you take Motherwell the initial strategy They've all been different with different obstacles. Was really nice, family feel type club. I'm not looking for a lot to do a deal with the creditors. I could probably, if I could even sell the whole lot, including the ground for about a million at that time, then I can get this out of administration. And at that time, there wasn't sanctions either because it was the first SPL club, and and I had a pretty easy ride from that point of view. So I was I was probably more confident generally with Motherwell than I was with the rest it got more difficult as the sanctions came in and other obstacles seemed to come in with the other ones. So Motherwell I always was kind of quietly confident about and a year goes by and I don't have a buyer. I mean, I had lots of interest and lots of local consortiums, but they were all too nervous because the TV money had come down and they're all thinking, well, okay, we can buy it for a million. Then what happens? You know, what's going to cost us? What's the whole going to cost us working capital, rebuilding the club? getting a few new players in, you know, because I was operating with a fairly skeleton staff, mm-hmm. um, smaller squad, you, you know, playing the younger boys, and they obviously want to want to repair the club and improve it. So there was, it was, they were too nervous. People were just too nervous to do it. So I get to the end of year two, and by this time, I'm still struggling on the pound and pound out because in administration, it's really difficult to attract commercial income and sponsorship sure. yeah. because there's an unknown, there's uncertainty. You want somebody to sponsor you for the year. What well, you can't assure them you'll be there in a year. Yeah. <laughs> so, running an administration can sometimes be quite difficult in terms of generating income. So I'm going into year two, still struggling pound and pound out. And if I can't pay wages or I run out of money, well, there's nowhere for me to go really. Mm. So getting close to the end of year two, and by this time, fortunately, this is where I say you need a bit of luck sometimes. The young boys are, have been given a chance. Nineteen players are away, mostly the most expensive ones. So young boys are coming in, and that really happened to all of them. 
with other players. You know, good comes out the bad sometimes. And uh, there are one or two of them beginning to emerge. Main ones that emerge, of course, are James McFadden and mm. Stephen Pearson. So, a different strategy appears. Here's a way out. We sold James for £1.25 million to, to Everton and with a sell-on, which got yeah. some more money later uh, when he was sold to Birmingham for £5 million. Mm-hmm. And Stephen Pearson to Celtic for three fifty. And Stephen was probably worth more at the time, but I think his contract was about to run out. Okay. I think he had half a season left. Yeah. So I had to tell you what so I could. actually, that's pretty good. 3.5 but it, yeah, yeah. I, th- I think at the time, I think I felt it was quite good in the circumstances. Mm. And that gave me 1.6 million. And with John Boyle's help and him waiving most of his claim, it meant I could offer creditors 25p in the pound. So when the creditors accepted that, what that did was it wiped all the debt off the balance sheet, which meant we could come out of administration with no debt. And and actually, they're slimmed down running costs. Sure. Yeah. So, the existing shareholders, John and the other shareholders, remained in control of the club. Mm. All I'd done really was get, put it back the status quo of cleaning up their balance sheet sure. yeah. and out of administration, which was not envisaged when I went in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, once you go in, sometimes the, I mean, Hearts was different as well because I couldn't get hold of the shares. Mm. So normally, you know, you get the shares and you do your CVA, so I had to do that one the other way around. I got my proposals all approved on the basis I'll get the shares yeah. <laughs> once I go through the whole process of Lithuania, right. if I can get them. So, you know, you just adapt as you're yeah. going to what's going to work in those particular circumstances. So, so they all have similarities, but they're all different. Mm. Uh, so you've kind of put all of these experiences into a, into a play. You've written a, a play, Pie Man Cometh. Where does the, where does the title come from? Uh, the title came from one of the jobs I was doing. One of my colleagues, who was somewhat new to it, day one said, "Brian, I need to talk to you about the pies." <laughs> and I said, "I said, well, why? I said, why is that, Duncan?" I said, uh, "Because there might not be a club here by tomorrow morning because I desperately needed to get cash. I think by close of business, I had no money to operate in this particular situation." And I said, "But." Tell me what's going on anyway, and he said, "Well, I think it was. I think the story was loosely that the fans didn't really like the pies. I think it'd been in their forum. Okay. <laughs> and you know, pies and football go together. Yeah, you know how important yeah. they are. And the people that weren't interested in buying the club, they wanted somebody different. And I had a client, um, client of my own firm, who used to supply them, who wanted to talk to me about getting back in the door and supplying the pies. And I'm, of course, my mind's thinking, I'm trying to actually save this club." And people are worrying about the pies. <laughs> Do they not understand that there might not be a club here? We might not need pies. So I said, Duncan, look, you just go and get the quotes and we can worry about it if we're still here in a few weeks. But of course, football club, cobble the money together, as you do. That keeps you going another couple of months, as we've discussed before, yeah, but yeah. then you've sold a player, cobble on another few months uh, till you try and get it over the line. So a few weeks later, I got an email from Duncan that said, Brian... The pie situation has come to a head. <laughs> and I thought, what a great title for a play. I mean, I think it was all just in the back of my mind because I was still working full-time um, because this was now a number of years ago. And it was there in the kind of the back of my head, this whole thing, this insanity of Scottish football. People are worried about these tiny wee things and I'm trying to save this whole club. Uh-huh. So there's a club there. Uh-huh. You know, if there's no club there, you like won't pies. need pies. <laughs> so, but I also think pies and football do go together, yes, of course. Yeah, so. Yeah. Anyway, I, I think it was just in the back of my head for quite a, quite a while. And then I was coming up to my retirement and I could kind of stop, <laughs> stop for breath a wee bit, look back at my career. And I suppose in some respects I realised how privileged I'd been 
I didn't realise it probably when I was actually working that I'd had a, a, a very lucky career and I was thinking a lot about it and all the things I dealt with over the years. And probably the football aspect came to mind more than anything else mm-hmm. because it's colourful. Mm. Well, and insane, of course. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so that came to mind probably more than anything else. And it then came to me that it might be quite interesting if I could write a play about it. That also, probably because I, I'd gone into semi-retirement, so a bit more time to think about it. And also my youngest daughter, Cara, she's a stage manager. Okay, so okay. she's freelance. So through going to watch things she's involved with, and I've met some writers through her, and okay. they've encouraged me as well. They've had a chat with me. They said, oh, come on, Brian, you've got so much material. Yeah, you've yeah, got to write yeah. something. So they sort of encouraged me. I, I probably didn't really think I was ever going to do it, but I was away on holiday one week. It was a kind of late holiday. I don't normally do the beach thing, and we hadn't intended to do it. And I was just lying there on kind of scene one came and then scene two came and by the time I came back I had a draft mm-hmm. that draft actually I think sat in my drawer for a couple of years I never opened it looked at it because it wasn't in a format I didn't yeah. have the skill set yeah. I'm not a playwright yeah. so I didn't have the skill set really but I, this, the kind of outline story was there and then I met uh, David Belcher who's ex-Herald journalist used okay. to do the diary um, and David had a look at it we had a wee chat and he said he liked it he said yep yeah, I would like to co-write it with you, prepare to give it a go. Mm. And he took it away. So did you write it as a play or did you write it as a story and then adapt it to I, a play? I actually wrote it as a play. Right. Uh-huh. But I had no skill set. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I, I'd, I'd kind of written it as things happened in a job. Sure. Uh-huh. So I took really, I thought, right, okay, well, I have the administration, so I get there, I meet the chairman. Yeah. Okay, so my first, my first sort of like sketch is me meeting the chairman. After that, I go and talk to the manager and decide who we're keeping, who we're not keeping. So my next one was that. Yeah. So it was written very simply. Yeah. In some respects, actually, I liked it. And I, um, a few people that, you know, friend and family read it, liked it, probably because they could see me through it. Yeah. It was a bit, It was simplified, but it wasn't probably in any format that could be used for a play anyway. So David took it and transformed it in a number of ways. First of all, we put it into a structure where it could actually be a play. He also took the characters and changed them, exaggerated them actually, and made mm-hmm. them more colourful. Yeah. Uh, because it's meant to be entertainment. So he did that as well. And, you know, so he'd then give it back to me. I'd look at it and say, well, I like that, but you've done, but I don't like that. Let's talk about it. And then we might decide, okay, let's tweak that a bit. So we'd go back and forward between us. It's probably kind of, the, the script more is probably now more his than mine, but what he has retained is. The outline story is the same. Uh, that's not changed. The messages are the same. The same irony is right throughout it. So there's a lot from the original has been retained, but the actual script and structure has mm. been vastly changed by him uh, for the better because I couldn't have done it on my own. Yeah. And then what happens is, this is where the analogy happens, is that, you, of course, this has been a learning curve for me, and I when you get to the stage of... We've done the script, really. We then David then introduced me to Frank Miller, the director, and when Frank read it and said he liked it, he would take it on. Once we've really finished that bit, apart from me in the background trying to organise it all and uh, organise the finances and do all, do all the administration of it, once Frank's got it, that's it. It's like the manager sent them out onto the field. Uh-huh. I've got no control now. Mm-hmm. Frank recruited the actors, 
they'll then change the script as they go through it, you know, obviously, because it comes yeah. out different yeah. when people yeah. see it. So, yeah. you know, the actors will work, work on that as I'm learning and they'll change things. And then they'll go out on the field <laughs> and I'll have no control. Yeah. It's like watching that cup game that one of my clubs will be lost, which costs us a quite a bit of money mm-hmm. uh, and I had no control over it I had done everything to facilitate the football side as people do but once they're out there I can't yeah. do anything about it sure. so that's exactly kind of what happened um, in, in circumstances beyond my control which were very frustrating and the, the, as I say the analogy is so Frank then sends those actors out and I can just watch it mm-hmm. just the same as you're watching your team <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and hope that yeah. they you know they perform I mean, I've met the actors. One of them is actually Freddie, my daughter, um, and I've seen him in things, so I was so pleased when we got him because yeah. I know he's yeah. really good. The other two well-known actors, I saw the run-through on Tuesday and I thought it was great. So is that oh. the first time you saw it on Tuesday? Yeah, Tuesday. Wow. We, were, we were behind schedule because of the snow oh, and gosh. because yeah. uh, Callum, one of the actors, unfortunately, had a bit of flu. Okay. So they weren't quite up to speed, so my wife mm. and I, we went along and saw it a bit raw. Trisha yeah. wanted to come to see it from a female kind of non-football perspective. Mm because it is a bit niche in terms of I think you guys will get bits that maybe non-football people yeah. wouldn't but it is theatre mm-hmm. and I think that there's something there for everybody a lot of it's to do with human relationships yeah. Yeah. and stuff yeah. and, the, and there is one scene that nobody has changed okay. and in, from my original uh-huh. a, a more serious scene of things that you have to deal with which I'm really pleased I've kept in because it, yeah. again it's me trying to give a message that, about people losing jobs losing money yeah. and that's not been changed yeah. and this, that was nice for me watching that come to life uh, it, yeah. that was good will people watching it recognise situations or characters from, from, real, from real life or how, how much has it been changed well, in the artistic process they're all fictitious of course <laughs> <laughs> stop me being sued <laughs> no, they're all, they are all fictitious none of the we won't ca- tell anybody uh, you did the uh, quotes that's alright <laughs> none of the characters are sorry I should say I told you the, the original why name that I came up with it was David that, that shortened it okay. and I think he's quite right I think that's a lot sharper a lot better mm. um, but none of the characters are actually based on anybody what I would say is the chairman is based on a combination of For a sure. number of yeah. people I've met and dealt with yeah. and, and the way you'd probably perceive a chairman to be in these situations but exaggerated yeah. to make it yeah. to make it entertainment the manager is based on a certain type of Scottish manager, but he's not based on any particular <laughs> okay. manager. He could be what he, you could watch him and say, He reminds me of so and so, or he uh, reminds me of so and so. So, and that's where I think football orientated people will get that bit more out of it mm. because you'll be thinking that. Mm. Whereas yeah. if you go along to it and you've no interest in football, no anything about football, you might still enjoy the scene with the manager, but you won't be thinking, Oh, he reminds yeah, me of somebody. Yeah. That, that's the difference. Yeah. 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 So, so it starts on this Sunday? It starts um, this, we, this we, Sunday. We, we normally put the, the podcast out on Mondays, but we're going to put this one out on Sunday. So it starts tonight. Um, and, and it runs for four nights. Yes, yes. And Sunday, Sunday night is totally sold out. Uh, Mondays, Congratulations. Thank you. And uh, Monday's pretty busy. Tuesday, Wednesday, there are still tickets available. Yeah. Um, I'm hoping we get a good review, obviously, after Sunday night. Yeah. Quite a lot of footballing people coming and yeah. pundits and mm. and uh, people from clubs coming, yeah. which is really nice. So, 
And it's a, re- in a reasonably sized venue as well. It's the Oran Moor. Oran Moor, yeah. yeah. It's Moor. I mean, I've been quite lucky, I think, in terms of managing to get Oran Moor, which is, yeah, which is a good venue, venue. Yeah, a yeah, well-known yeah. venue. As I say, three great actors, when I watched them go through it, I was really impressed. Yeah, uh, yeah. They, I thought they played it really well and very enthusiastic. I mean, they're really enjoying it. Uh, and I'm hoping, I've, I'm, I've been offered the Edinburgh Fringe. Brilliant. I'm hoping great. to take it to the Fringe. And the actors already said to me, if I can give them a commitment, it's likely they'll give me one because uh-huh. I think they're really enjoying it. I think yeah. they're enjoying doing it. Yeah. I mean, it, without giving anything away, it's you know about the administration of a fictitious football club. So you've got the administrator, obviously, as the main character. Now, the person playing that, Gavin, he, in some ways, has got quite a difficult job because he's got the straight job. Mm. He's got the boring accountant. Yeah, yeah. Me job. Yeah, the same one. <laughs> well, he starts saying it's, a, it's about his journey as well. Sure. Because, you know, it his does affect you. Yeah. And again, I've put that into my story. Yeah. I mean, it does affect you. Uh, you know, you, you go home at night and uh, you sit in a dark room sometimes and, you know, mm-hmm. and think, where do I go next with this? And y- your wife comes in to support you and slaps you over the head and tells you, I told you not to take that job on. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, so he's he's got quite a difficult part to play because he doesn't have the funny lines, you know. Sure. Right. And the other two actors get parts that are real fun for them to play because yeah. they get all the crazy parts. Yeah. Uh, uh, but watching them go through it... Um, they were really enthusiastic and told me they just really enjoyed doing it, which mm-hmm. is great. You know, mm-hmm. so that was really great. So it has made me quietly confident yeah. that yeah. It's, it's going to ha- it's going to be good and it's going to be funny and there's going to be sad bits too. Yeah. Uh, I think it's, yeah. Hopefully, it's got a wee bit for uh, for everybody. Yeah. Well, I hope these last few days you get yeah. good ticket sales for the remaining nights and get lots of feedback that gives you the confidence to put it on at the fringe. Yes, I mean, I was um, uh, I was hoping, quite frankly, but you know, it's my naivety. You know, how come I'm not sold out by now? And my daughter tells me, are you being funny? Your sales are absolutely fantastic for this industry at this stage. Yeah. Of course, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, you know, she's saying, no, you're, you're doing really, really well. And I suppose she's right. If I don't even sell another ticket, we're still going to be pretty full. Yeah. Well, as I say, first night's totally full, but the other nights are, are still going to be pretty full anyway. Yeah. So it's going to be a good audience. So that's uh, been really nice. And hopefully, yeah, hopefully we will end up totally filling it because we're not miles away brilliant so just to recap it's Sunday sold out you've still got tickets Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday Uh, where can people buy tickets? they can buy tickets on the comedy festival uh, online they just need to look it up online and they can also buy tickets direct from Oran Moore they can phone Oran Moore or go to Oran Moore and just buy tickets there both still have remaining tickets the second night is pretty full as well but there's still a few tickets left second night Mm -hmm. third and fourth they've got a bit more Okay. okay. Well, we're going to try and come Tuesday night, so yeah. we'll, uh, we're looking forward to it. Well, um, I, I look forward to you coming, and um, please come and see me first in the main bar, and uh, you'll get a complimentary pie. Oh, pie. Oh, <laughs> oh, pies and football, we go together. <laughs> and, and last question, can we expect more writing from you? I know you... Uh, you is this something that you'd quite like to see you see something? I, I really don't know. I mean, I'm not. I'm not sure. I mean, I've always been able. To, I've always been able to write things, you know, uh, in I suppose our background. Well, way. you tell great stories. You, you can know, just tell so, that from just speaking to you. The way oh, that you tell you. stories is well. <laughs> well in for Alan says yeah. the way you explain things. It's very well, easy for people to understand. So I just wondered if this is something you've thought about for a while. Well, I'm not sure. Uh, see, I think I'm not sure. I'm actually a writer. As I said before. I put this together through experience, and it's a bit like 
you know, I can't remember his name, was it Terry Waite that was kidnapped, you know, so oh, yeah. He, yeah. He, he wrote a book about his experiences and mm. being kidnapped for six yeah. years, but he wasn't really a writer, so yeah. one, it was really, this is what happened to me, and then the, the, sto- the story of the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah. But I don't think he did anything else because he's not really a writer. I yeah. probably feel about the same. I'm not sure I'm really a writer or I have that skill set because when I've seen some of the things that have been written, some of the plays I've gone to, my daughter's been in, I've thought, what part of the brain does that writer have that I don't? Mm. Yeah. You know, mm. I've seen some, you know, yeah. just they're so clever. I'm really, I'm really coming up with things from my experiences and that doesn't mean I couldn't come up with another one because I've had lots of interesting experiences. So there might be something else in there. I'd certainly need another a co-writer again like David. Yeah. And in the back of my mind, I'm maybe hopeful if they're successful, they're, yeah, possibly could come up with something else, but um, I don't actually think I'm a writer, I have to be honest. I, I'm sure I can write things, but... We'll be the judge of that, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for that. I'll have to get myself a bit thicker skin then. <laughs> Make sure the pie's really good, then. We'll all, we'll all yeah, say good it. things. Well, the pies will definitely be good, because the pie supplier is a good friend of mine and was clients of my firm for years when I was in practice. Uh, he's a great guy, and he supplies... Uh, most of Scotland's okay. football ah, ground pies okay. so I can tell you the pies will be good, good. <laughs> okay. well thank you so much for joining us uh, fantastic to have yeah, you thanks for coming well. really fascinating and uh, good luck with all the plays yes well thanks very much for having me and uh, thanks for your support and coming along appreciate it great Cheers. thanks Brian thanks so there we go that was Brian Jackson uh, fascinating interview uh, just Really interesting to hear the wealth of experiences. And I just realised that I had a huge smile on my face for pretty much all of that. Just hearing about his experiences. And I say he's got a, a really, um, well, this is ironic, but I'm saying a, a real ability to be able to tell stories and speak coherently and express himself in That's a right. very understandable manner. Yeah, one of uh, the most most entertaining accountants I've ever had the pleasure <laughs> of speaking to. Absolutely, very uh, yeah, engaging. He's a, it's, uh, yeah, just, I had a big smile on my face as well the whole time because it is, although we're talking about some pretty difficult times in clubs, mm. um, he's got a very light touch with, with how he talks about it and there's a lot of humour there mm. as, as well in, 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 in these stories. Mm. And he says he's not much of a writer, but, he, you know, I think the key to writing is being able to tell a story and yeah. he certainly has that ability. So right. I'm really looking forward to the play on Tuesday and uh, it's described as a dark comedy, which I, I'm not sure it will be League of Gentlemen dark comedy, <laughs> but uh, I'm sure it will be, uh, it will be funny nevertheless. Yeah. Um, so uh, what, the other thing we were going to talk about this week was the repeal of the Offensive Behaviour Act. Yeah, that's right. It's just um, we're recording this on Friday. That was just yesterday, Thursday, yeah. that, uh, uh, that the, the stage three of that repeal bill went through. Uh, Which and is it was, the first time that legislation has been repealed. Right. In yeah, the in Scottish, 19, Scottish. Ye- 19 years of the Scottish yeah. Parliament, the first piece of legislation that's been repeal- repealed. So a victory for a group of supporters who saw something that they weren't happy about and instead of moaning about it, did something and campaigned. Um, they got an MSP to um, to take, a, take it on uh, and to run with it and to lead the, the parliamentary action uh, to, to bring, out, uh, bring about that repeal. And it's, it's gone through this, this week after, I think, six years of, mm. of campaigning. Mm. So a great victory there. Um, I guess everybody will have a, a slightly different view on that piece of legislation and, and why it needed to be repealed or whether it needed to be repealed. Um, we gave evidence, um, particularly Andrew gave evidence to the um, to the to the committee as they were discussing the repeal, um, and the, I guess the big theme from from us for us as an organisation, having consulted with our members, is that 
it singled out football fans uh, for their offensive behaviour uh, in ways that it didn't single out any other uh, section of society in Scotland. Uh, and I don't think anybody denies that there's a problem in Scotland with sectarianism, yeah. with racism, with homophobia, with sexism. Um, but a, a piece of football-specific legislation, our view was that wasn't the way to, to solve that issue. Uh, and I think... Um, there were fans that didn't want to see it repealed as well, even on Twitter that, you know, posting things about it. You'd had a lot of fans that that weren't happy with it being repealed and, and that in some way that by repealing it, you were in favour of those isms, you know, particularly sectarianism. And um, I think that that's getting away from the point. As you say, this is a discriminatory piece of legislation, yeah. singles out one aspect of society. You could do something in a street and, and do something in a stadium and be treated completely yeah. differently. And, and I think it's just the way that it's viewed football fans as well. And, and, and I think as we've spoken before, you know, Glastonbury or I think as well, Calvin Harris gigs, people have been, have been more arrests yet. Yeah. It's the way that the, the football supporters yeah. are reported. And so. So all those isms are a problem in our society Absolutely. and we need to do something about it. But uh, this piece of legislation wasn't the answer. I'm not even sure if it's a piece of legislation that's needed, but no. something that, that, that either educates or, or helps people to, to behave in a different way. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I'm, I think legislation can be a very blunt instrument. Um, my observation, having listened to the other podcast, uh, Andrew was a, a guest, guest briefly on the football, uh, sorry, Fans Against Criminalisation podcast a few weeks ago. Uh, and one of the things I really noticed from listening to that, which is an excellent podcast, uh, you should check that out if you can, uh, some of the stories about people who have been victims of that legislation who have had their lives put on hold for a year or two years while uh, a legal process was fought that ultimately you know didn't lead didn't lead to you know either charges were dropped or they were found non not guilty uh, actually hearing those stories of of uh, of of those those issues there and most of the things that were being accused of were things that there was already legislation in place for but the fact that there was a football specific piece of legislation seemed to give um, a different attitude towards policing. Mm. I think that was one of the big issues. Mm. Um, the fact is, we have a lot of legislation out there that that is meant to meant to meant to ensure people behave properly um, and are punished if they don't. Um, but somehow, this piece of legislation was used in a fairly crude and aggressive manner to um, to single out one section of society and and mm. not others. And I think it's fair to say that. Um, well, the, it's got one of the lowest conviction rates. I think it's the third lowest conviction rate of any piece of legislation or for any crime. Um, I don't think the situation has improved since it's been implemented. No. I no. think the relationships have worsened between the, the key stakeholders within that. And, and ultimately, whatever does come in its place needs to be um, improved dialogue between all of these groups, mainly police, football authorities, government and um, football fans as the yeah. main stakeholders yeah. within all of this. So... Um, We'll be interested to see, yeah. you know, we, we certainly need to do something, as you say, Alan, about about these isms. But uh, you're right, I'm not entirely sure legislation is the answer. But certainly yeah. um, people taking more uh, accountability for their actions as well. Yeah, hopefully um, the, the support of the liaison officer role can play a part in, in that dialogue that, that we feel that, that could improve things that in, a, in a way that legislation doesn't. We already have the, that role established at many of our clubs in Scotland. And actually, you know, having that liaison officer um, bring about that dialogue uh, you know, educate on the on the on the types of behaviour that do cause a problem, um, and help uh, the police um, intervene in a in a more gentle, more sensitive manner when when those things do happen to keep people out of court uh, and ultimately out of prison and uh, to stop it from uh, to to stop it from impacting their lives. Mm. Um, 
Mm, absolutely, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, and that was that was kind of the keynote to finish on, I guess, really, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, uh, it was a big week because of that legislation and uh, and a big podcast for us. We're really, uh, really pleased how that one went. Um, we hope this gets really good listenership because I think it's a, a great uh, great chat, great stories that, that Brian has um, and it'll help us get this, this podcast mm, out there. Mm, we'll talk more. Very much so. So thank you very much for joining us. And again, hopefully you'll be able to join us next week when our guest will be... We don't know <laughs> at this stage. I thought you were going to tell me again. I was, I was meant to pretend that I knew all along again. <laughs> no, no, no guests confirmed as yet. We'll line something up. We absolutely will. Until then, bye. Bye. Behind the Goals is a Supporters Direct Scotland podcast. You can get in touch with the show by emailing behindthegoals at hotmail.com or you can also tweet the show at SupDirectScott. That's S-U-P-P Direct Scott.